The Second Act podcast is brought to you by Chin Whiskers Beard and Hair Care. Chin Whiskers is an affordable, Canadian-made, 100% natural men's grooming line. It's available at your local Tommy Guns Original Barbershop, Amazon, or at chinwhiskers.ca. Welcome to the Second Act podcast. Welcome back to the Second Act Podcast. Today's guest is one that came recommended to me from an old high school buddy of mine. He's been listening to what we've been trying to do here, and he he reached out and said, "You know, I've got I know a few interesting fellows out on Vancouver Island, and I think there's probably a couple that would that would be willing to sit down and talk with you." So, um, on Aaron Magoo's recommendation, I reached out to Jason Lamb. He's the morning host on ninety one point three The Zone, and and that alone is is an interesting conversation because you know he's doing broadcast media in his hometown Victoria and it it wasn't a straight line from from A to Z for him but once you kind of get into the nuts and bolts of of who Jason Lamb is and and how he got there it's an incredible story the the second act probably doesn't do it justice he he started out thinking he was going to going to maybe want to be a a stand up comedian and and then he realizes that's not all that he thought it was cracked up to be. And, and he realizes that there's just, you know, a bigger grind to that than he was willing to give up. So, you know, in, at a midpoint in his life, he he went back and got his broadcast journalism degree and, and starts down a path there that allows him to, to work at a radio station and, and chase a few kind of things from his past where he was, he was a huge, uh, you know, seminal Victoria punk band, uh, no means no. He was a huge fan of them. And, and as he was able to carve out an hour every Friday night for a punk rock show on a on a mainstream commercial terrestrial radio station, he started getting into that scene more and more. And he realized, hey, there's there's an appetite for this stuff out here. And he he ends up uh, he's in the middle of writing a book on on his favorite kind of teenage adolescent band, No Means No. And and when you think about that, you're like, wow, this guy, you know, stand up comedian. He goes and he gets into broadcast journalism and, and through all that, he ends up in a position where he's writing a book about his, his favorite band growing up and, and all these different things that he's doing, you know, and, and is at the age he's at now, he's looking back at it and saying, what if, what if things are successful and I keep doing this? What, what does that look like for him? So it's just a really interesting conversation. Um, it doesn't take the form of, of a lot of the ones. Uh, Jason and I kind of got right into it and we started talking and kind of before I knew it, we, we weren't following the format that the Second Act podcast, you know, kind of typically does. So, so it doesn't flow exactly like the ones that you're, that you're used to hearing from us. But I'm telling you, man, with his background in this, he, he can fill it up, man. He knows what he's, how, to, how to talk and tell the story and convey his emotions and it's it's incredible. Um, my audio on it was bubbly again. Um, I'm, I'm having troubles with some things here, and I'm still trying to figure out my filters and how to fix all this. So, so again, it's it's what the what the guest is saying and not what I'm saying that that you're here for. So, that's a lot of fun to listen to, and it's just um, it's an interesting conversation. It's a lot of fun, and I really look forward to uh, to you guys hearing it and and hearing what you have to think about it. So, without any further ado, well, welcome, Jason Lamb. Yeah, and I just like I, I guess I think uh, from what I can gather, you're just kind of like a you're a Victoria guy. Um, yeah. You're in radio. You've kind of been a champion of the music scene out there, and and over the years, you kind of achieved this kind of position where you are. So Aaron says you're kind of somewhat viewed as a elder statesman of it. You kind of know around when the Daglo abortions were kind of kicking off, and you've kind of been through all the whole works of them, and then. So now you're on the radio and you're dabbling in comedy and just kind of doing the things that you love to do around uh, around the greatest city in Canada. There you go. Yeah, that's pretty much close to what it is. Um, I can give you the quick history if you want. I mean, uh, so I'm, I was born in Victoria, raised here, lived here till I was about 23 or something, and I moved to Vancouver. Met my now wife there, and uh, was waiting tables, and and I started doing stand up. This this is like '98, uh, when I was about 27, I guess. I started doing stand up, and uh, was part of that whole Vancouver comedy scene for a bunch of years. Uh, you know, back in 
there's a place called the Urban Well, and Brent Butt was the weekly host, and it was a pretty cool thing. I toured with Yuck Yucks a bunch of times, and I got on a I got to a certain level of stand up. I never was really a major headliner or doing that well, but I I was part of the scene, and I loved doing it. And then I was uh, I realized at some point that like, hey, maybe I won't be like a famous comedian, and I need to have a backup plan here. I don't want to be a waiter anymore, so I went back to school. Um, like pretty late in life, like I was 34 or something. And I went back to BCIT uh, and got my uh, degree in broadcast journalism because I was like, I always kind of liked radio and news and stuff. And so then my wife and I moved to Kelowna and lived there for a couple of years where I got my first radio job. We had a kid. And then it was like, we don't want to live in Kelowna anymore. Where do we go? Back to Vancouver, ideally, or maybe Victoria where I'm from. We'll see what happens. And then I got offered a job at a radio station here back in Victoria, uh, and originally it was a uh, station called The Q, and I was a reporter at The Q, and then uh, their sister station, The Zone, was like across the hall, filled in a few times on the morning show when the uh, morning girl was sick, and got a rapport going with Dylan, we kind of hit it off and, and everything, and then she ended up uh, leaving, and they offered me that job, and so that was like 2008, so what is that, 13 years ago, and uh, so I've been on the morning show ever since with Dylan and it's been awesome. Like, cause it's now I can, I still read the news and stuff in the mornings, but I can be the goofy wacky morning show guy and still be kind of a comedian on the radio. And then as far as the punk stuff is concerned, like the music stuff, I mean, the zone in general has really always been very supportive of local music, Victoria bands and stuff like that. We're not, we don't play a lot of punk rock music or modern rock or whatever. But uh, a few years into it, I was like, I pitched the idea of doing a, a punk show. Um, and they said, okay. And so it started off online. And then uh, a few years ago, it went on the air. So it's a, the, the coveted Friday midnight spot they gave me. And it's, <laughs> they gave me an hour of like no censorship. And this is like a commercial radio station, like a proper mainstream radio station, Patterson. Um, yeah. Um, they gave me an hour of no censorship, no commercials, and I can play whatever I want every Friday night up for punk rock music. And I've been doing that for, uh, like I say, it started off online, uh, but I started that 10 years ago now, and it's been awesome. So I've, I'm always trying to support local punk bands, and it's also opened up a lot of doors because I get to go to festivals and uh, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, so, and then the stand-up thing continued uh, when I moved back to Victoria, and I was actually the house MC at Hecklers for like five or six years. But I kind of threw the towel in with with stand up about three years ago. I just uh, I just got too busy and it just I wasn't really writing a lot of new stuff and it just became kind of a grind and I didn't want to do it anymore. So I'm technically done, although I might dabble in it one day again. So that's in a nutshell where I'm at there. Okay, so that's cool. Um, yeah, that's that's okay. But actually, I think there's a lot to kind of. <laughs> You know, because it's you, like you you did some stuff, and then okay, I got to get on with my real life here. And you did, found something that you liked, and you went after it. Yeah. But you never really let that other stuff go, and now you've kind of found an opportunity to keep that stuff around. And you, like stand up exactly. comedy is something I think probably that lots of guys find out they're not in stand up comedy anymore when they're just no longer being contacted for anything. And you were kind of like, no, like I'm going to take a step back from this because I have all this other stuff going on, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. And I mean, without really being, it's funny, like in my life or whatever, like I, I don't feel like I really made a lot of conscious decisions or really thought carefully about what I was doing and how it would lead to the next thing. But it seems to have sort of been almost a subconscious thing or, or it just kind of worked out like, my stand-up, I mean, I always loved comedy ever since I was a little kid. I mean, that was the dream, was to be a funny guy, right? Whatever that means. And uh, so I did that, and I was doing the stand-up route. And, you know, reality hit me in the face where it was like, hey, this might not end up being the career. I don't like being on the road all the time. I, it's, a, it's a hard life. It's, it's hard to be, the, you know, out of a thousand comics, maybe five of them become, you know, full-time making good living comedians. So it's like, it's a real hard thing to, to try to tackle. So 
I thought, okay, what else do I like in life? Like, okay, well, I, I listen to the radio. I kind of, I've always been a bit of a news junkie. Maybe I could do that. But wouldn't it be great one day if I could somehow marry the two things and be on the radio and be funny too? And that sort of happened that way. I guess I made it happen. I manifested it or whatever, but I didn't, it just kind of, there was some luck involved too, I guess, or something. And I managed to, the experience of doing the standup um, has really helped me with my ability to be on the radio and be and entertain people, I guess, you know, when I, when I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. No, and that's, I think that's, um, that awareness of that is it's like it's not every, not everybody has that and it's it's like an earned awareness almost like it's not some people have that and you're like looking around you and you know especially now with the ad like it seems to somebody on the outside that every comedian has a Netflix special like that's what it seems like people you've never heard of and and frankly aren't particularly that funny and have a yeah. Netflix special sure um, but to your point it's like half a percent of those of the people that tried it got a Netflix special. So it's, it's exactly. a huge field and probably very competitive, I'm assuming. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it seems like everybody's got a Netflix special, but for every one of those people, there's a, literally a thousand other co comedians out there yeah. struggling and maybe they're making a little bit of money here and there, but they're microwaving uh, hot dogs and, you know, making ramen noodles in a coffee pot in a hotel room and, you know, yeah. Grand Prairie, Alberta. So, yeah, which is an actual thing that I, I've done. So, I was going to say that yeah. just reeked of uh, actual experience the way you said it. Yeah, man. I mean, those Yuck Yucks tours, I think I did four of them. And they're like, they're sort of two month long tours each time. You do all, all BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and you're driving for fucking. Can I swear, by the way? Is that all right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, you're driving for sometimes 10 12 hours to get between gigs and you're stuck with a headliner in the car who may or may not be somebody you get along with or really have a rapport with it, it's like not a glamorous life man and you're staying in crappy hotels playing to something you know, and playing to sometimes great shows wonderful comedy clubs other times seedy biker bars and really sketchy places and uh I don't know how a lot of people do it. I mean, I, I got out of it. When I say got out of it, I mean, I, I, I decided to get the backup plan going, the radio thing, uh, early enough, I think, that I, that I was smart that way. But I've seen a lot of people who go so far with it, and they're, that's all they know, kind of. And the next thing they know, they're 60 years old, and they're living on the road, and they're barely making their rent, and they don't have any other skills. Like, they're, they're great at being a comedian, but they're not going to get a next Netflix special anymore. They're not going to get a sitcom anymore. Those days are done. So they're now going to be a touring Canadian comedian for the rest of their lives. And I just, to me, that was not appealing. I mean, there's some great things. You meet some cool people and you, when the shows are great, it's the best feeling in the world. But I don't know, man, the booze and the, that lifestyle just, uh, it takes a chunk out of you. I'm making it sound terrible, but it's like, that's just kind of the reality of it, you know? Well, and that's the, that's the part of it that nobody wants to see and nobody knows, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I mean, that sounded really doom and gloomy, but I mean, I, I still love doing stand-up. Making people laugh is amazing, you know? I mean, and when you're on stage and you've got the crowd on your side and it's going well, there's nothing better. But the other thing with me too is, and why radio is better for me, I think, is uh, I never really... I never really totally got over the stage fright thing. Like it, it's really nerve wracking too, right? And you're by yourself with a microphone and a spotlight on you in front of, you know, anywhere from 20 to 200 or 300 people. And uh, it's terrifying, man. And, uh, you know, I, I was pretty good at it for a while, but I, you know, I used booze to, to numb the, the nerves. And that was, you know, that, that was no good. You can't do that every day. And so, that's another reason why I kind of stepped away. I'm like, I, it was taking a chunk out of me. It was, uh, you know, in a, being on the radio, you're, you're talking to your co-host across the way. And even though thousands of people are listening to you, you're, you're insulated. You know what I mean? It's, you're, you're talking to one other person, really, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no, I, I feel that totally with, 
the podcast because um, I look at my listens and there's whatever 150 listens or whatever. Yeah. And if I had 150 people sitting in front of me, I'd you know it'd be a very different thing instead of yeah. instead of this, right? So. Yeah. So have you done stand up? Is this something that you're interested in or not? No. That's 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 no. No. <laughs> Good. No, Good, call. Good call. I'm uh, my I make my kids laugh. Um, yeah. With with old jokes, so that's about all I can. Do. Hey guys, we just wanted to take a quick break in the action here to mention that Appointed Imports is somebody that you can reach out to uh, if you remember from episode one, Dave Murray and and his wife uh, Leah, and and we just want to make mention that they're out there. Um, they're they're bringing in new new drink uh, ideas, new ingredients, new seltzer options all the time to to make your, your summer and fall drinking and uh, libation and nosh opportunities better and better. So reach out to them on Instagram, at Appointed Imports, and follow them. Uh, see what they've got going on. The chances that they're going to have something you haven't seen before and something you really like are 100%. Back to Jason. Do you know the band No Means No? Yeah. Yeah, so they're from Victoria originally, and they're probably my favorite band, definitely my favorite punk band of all time, and one of my absolute favorite bands, other than some of the big ones like The Who and stuff that I really love too. But uh, uh, yeah, I just basically, with the punk show that I've talked about already, um, I had interviewed a couple of the guys from the band in the past on the phone, and then I met them. Um, I'd seen them a million times growing up in Victoria. And I kind of was like, no one's ever really written a book about these guys before. There is actually one little book that came out. It was like sort of a paperback about the size of, I don't know, like a postcard. I have it somewhere. Anyway, um, but I was like, we need to have a proper book about this band because they had a 35-year career and, you know, they played thousands of shows all over the world and they were a pretty big deal for what they were. And I, you know, there's lots of visuals and stuff that I had in mind. So I got a hold of their publicist. They're retired now, but they still have a publicist, uh, and her name's Melanie. And I said, uh, I want to write up a proposal and like see if these guys will be interested in me doing a book about them. And the thing about No Means No is that they always prided themselves as being very sort of mysterious in a way. They never, you know, they would often have fake alias names on their album covers, or they wouldn't have they wouldn't have pictures of themselves. So not the kind of guys that normally want to have this kind of attention. So I was warned, like, hey, they might just totally ignore you or they'll say no. And somehow I managed to uh, catch them at some sort of a time when they were feeling a little bit nostalgic. And they said, yeah, yeah we're into it. And no one's known as two brothers, these guys, John and Rob Wright. And then they had a, a guitar player named Andy early in their career and then a guy named Tom later on. And they said, yeah, we're into it. Go for it. And that was like literally a week before the lockdown started last year in March of, of 2020. Uh, it was crazy. So I was like, okay, wow, I'm going to do this book. And uh, so I spent the entire year last year during COVID interviewing people for the book. And I talked to, I think maybe 350, 375 people, something like that. Um, lot, hundreds and hundreds of hours of interviews and then just gathering photographs and posters and people sending me memorabilia and, and you know putting together all this stuff it was crazy and so it's still going strong now that interview stuff is mostly done and now i'm literally putting the book together and uh it's really really fucking hard <laughs> it's yeah. an insane, insane amount of work man and i got a publisher which is great um a place called pm press out of san francisco and they're going to do a good job of it all. But uh, it's still like over a year away before it's actually a book in people's hands. Um, yeah. That's what's taking up all my spare time now, you know, beyond my full-time radio gig and family. I'm Every time I get a chance, I sit down and work on the book. So it's really fun, but it's really, really hard. And a, a passion project, right? 100% a passion project. Yeah. It's, you know, and that's back to the theme of your podcast about people doing what they love and stuff. I mean, I'm a believer in, in, you'll never know unless you ask, right? You know, if you, if, if you want to do something and it involves getting help from somebody or permission from somebody, you know, you just have to ask. And the worst that's going to happen is they'll say no. 
And when they say yes, um, it's amazing. And so all my life, I always thought, wouldn't it be cool to write a book one day? And, and I didn't know what that ever would mean, really. Um, I'm not really that creative as far as like writing a novel or something. But this is perfect. This is my favorite band. They're all on board. I, you know, I, since I also went and visited the guys. They all live over on the mainland now. A couple of times now I've been over to visit them. They're all super nice. And it's been incredible. And I've made lots of new friends. And, and you know, it's a whole learning experience because I've never written a book before. It's all a whole new world. Um, and I've made some mistakes along the way and stuff. But uh, it's it's pretty cool. It's a pretty rewarding thing to to. to take on something like this and then, you know, see it to completion, which it's not yet, but. Yeah. yeah. And you're, but you're not like, like you said, you're not classically trained as an author or an English major or anything like that. Like this. I don't is know, not, yeah. yeah. Not in the slightest. It's a, this book is going to be an oral history. So I, I don't know if you've read those kind of like biographies that were like, they're told by the people that were there. So the job, my job is not so much writing as it is actually just, going through all the interviews I did and then grabbing the quotes from everybody and putting them where they belong. And so it makes sense and flows. And that's almost harder, I think, in a lot of ways than just writing because I'm sifting through and carving through hundreds of interviews. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's I've, I've got a good system down now. It's, it's working, but uh, yeah, it's crazy. And I thought yeah, I remember about 15 years ago, Motley Crue, when they did the Heroin Diaries, and yeah. their, Tommy Lee yeah. wrote a book, and it was an oral history, and his penis was was one of the characters. His penis talked as though, like, when he would talk about the Pam Anderson stuff, his penis got a speech, got a, you know. Well, that's fantastic. I love that. Uh, my penis is not one of the characters in this book. It would be a sad state of affairs. <laughs> yeah, well, that's <laughs> Yeah, at that point, he had nothing to hide, so. <laughs> That's true. Well, I, I'm a big proponent, I've found with this, is positive vibes out, man. Get positive vibes back, you know? I, I'm a believer in that. It's, you know, sometimes that's easier to say than to live, you know, especially when things, when, when you know, people start saying no to you about stuff or, or um, walls start going up, it can be a bit discouraging. Um but if you can kind of get your head down a little bit and understand it only takes one good thing to negate all of those other things, you know what I mean? And those, and it will happen. Um, everybody struggles with that kind of thing too, you know? Um, you know, it's funny, like I talked to you about, oh yeah, and the band said they would do this book and it was so exciting. And then I got this great job. It sounds like all of these things just happened and everything was awesome. But I mean, that there's a lot of work involved in all of that and a lot of, doors slamming in your face too right you gotta uh persevere that's a, a big part of it but positive positive thinking brings positive results it's kind of a cliche but it's true it really is if you keep that up well and and i think it's um you you have to be okay with understanding why people say no or don't respond like yeah when you when you shoot your shot with somebody and they you don't get a response back it's not a something about you personally because they never took the time to understand it they just they get 50 of them a day and they don't respond to them 100 percent, exactly so so when you're when you're out doing your comedy like when you're out starting off and, and doing it was this um like did you have a backup plan or were you just like i'm gonna do this until it doesn't work out for me yeah i guess kind of that um I started late, you know, I didn't, I didn't, the first time I ever got on stage to do stand up, I was 27. Um, and so it was uh, something that all my, but even since I was a kid, I, I always wanted to do stuff like that. I just never got around to it or had the balls to try. And uh, yeah, I just, um, what actually happened with me, the reason I started was I'm a big Monty Python fan, like obsessively big Monty Python fan all my life. And I went down to Aspen, Colorado in March of 98, because uh, Monty Python, the, the five uh, um, surviving members of Monty Python were getting this big award and they were going to do a live interview as part of this comedy festival down in Colorado. And I went down to Colorado by myself and uh, to see it. And I met 
a couple of the guys. I met Terry Jones and Michael Palin of Monty Python. And, um, and then it was a big comedy festival around that. So I met all these other people and saw all these shows and I met like, uh, you know, John Lovitz and, and uh, Dennis Miller and all these people. And it was, I came out of that and came home and I'm like, well, I got to do this. Like, this is really what I want to do. Like, I, I just, I loved witnessing that lifestyle or whatever. It just seems so amazing. And I'm like, why did I wait so long? I got to go. And I just started uh, writing jokes and um, I even took like a writing course and then I started just showing up at open mics. And I, you know, I didn't, it's not like I tossed everything aside and said, I'm going to be a comedian and this is it. I was still working at restaurants and stuff. I had to pay rent and I had to pay my bills and everything, but I really wanted to make a go of it, make comedy be my thing. And so I went really hard at it for about six years. Um, maybe even longer. Yeah. More like seven or eight years until then that's when I decided, uh, and it was going great. I mean, I was touring and I was, I knew everybody in the scene and I was opening for all these big names and, but I wasn't quite hitting that next level in a time in my in, in, quickly enough in my mind. And I, that's when I was like, ah, I need to have something better here because otherwise I'm going to do this and spin my wheels and, and sort of make half a living doing stand up and have to always wait tables. And if I keep doing that for too long, I'm not going to have any other, it's going to be too late to do anything else. And then I'll be fucked. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. uh, does that answer your question? So to start with, that's what I did. I just started showing up and getting on open mic shows. Cause in Vancouver at the time, there was the standup scene was really good. I mean, there was, there was a show every night, sometimes two or three different stages to go to in a night um all over town and it was a really great vibrant scene with really cool people and lots of funny comedians and uh it was awesome i wouldn't trade it for the world it was so much fun but uh like i say the reality kind of came knocking and i'm like yeah i don't know man i gotta have another plan here because i don't want to i don't want to turn i don't want to look in the mirror one day and go I'm, I'm 55 years old and i can't make my rent and i've got another tour of saskatchewan that might make my rent and then i gotta come home and wait tables no, I can't, I, I can't, I can't do that. So you never really did like do it full time. You were, you were constantly got to that point where you had to make a choice and, and you never went to it full time or basically. Yeah. Yeah. I never, I never took the leap and, and, and tried to do stand up truly full time. There was a period where I was making, I was getting enough paid work that it was like actually an income. Um, and I'm maybe there was a couple of moments when I could have tried to make that leap and, you know, quit my job at the restaurant and, and just tried to make a go of it doing stand-up. And I don't know if it was fear of that or, or what that prevented me, but um, it was such a gamble, man. Like I say, like even never mind the Netflix specials, never mind the, the fame, even to be a full-time working comedian in Canada is a very small percentage of, of, all of the people doing it does that make sense like there's you know there's a few yeah. um and especially now like i mean to tell you the truth too like i don't even know how people do it now uh i guess there's still a circuit um i mean covid changed everything too i mean my god i feel i have a lot of friends that had a really bad year last year because they were trying to make a go of doing stand-up full-time or at least most of their income was stand-up and there was nothing like i mean as soon as the lockdown started, there was, you know, some people try to do like Zoom comedy shows for corporations, the staff parties and stuff. And I don't think that was any good. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I loved doing it and it was wonderful to pursue that dream. And I didn't take it as far as maybe I could have. But I think I kind of did. I think I think I got about as far as I was meant to go with it. And, and is that like, so if you, like, if you had been kind of on a track where maybe like a just for laughs or something like that was attainable, is that like kind of a, a cornerstone turning point for a Canadian comedian or a comedian of any variety? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, stuff like just for laughs, you know, and this, this is actually a good example of what I was talking to you about where the stage fright thing comes in is uh and also also maybe a little bit of self-sabotage in a way is that is sometimes hard to explain but one of the things living in vancouver doing stand-up is every year 
the Just for Last people would come to town and they would put a big showcase show on. They would call it a showcase. So uh, the mucky mucks from Just for Laughs, the talent, the talent uh, bookers for Just for Laughs would come to town. And then the Urban Well or Yuck Yucks or one of the clubs at the time would put on a big show with like 20 comics. Now every comic got three minutes each. Boom, boom, boom. And the, the guys from the festival would be in the audience with a notepad making notes and saying, oh, that guy was really funny. Oh, she was really great. Uh, he wasn't so good. Oh, I didn't really like her. But and when I, and I got on those showcases all the time. But every time I did a showcase, I fucking bombed. Like I just I I, I would have amazing shows leading up to it. And then it would be the night of the showcase, and I would just go up there and stink it up. And I think it was nerves, like yeah. knowing that it was such an important thing. Um, I would blow it for myself nine times out of ten. And I, so I never got just for laughs. I had lots of friends that did. Um, and then there was the Winnipeg Comedy Festival was another one. Um, and then like uh, CBC shows, uh, comedy, comedy now was another one. Yeah. Um, was that what it was called? Yeah, comedy now. Uh, th there was a bunch of the different things you could get, you know, TV specials, radio stuff, and I got pretty much nothing. Like I never really got those things. I I got the tours. I got to. I was good enough that Yuck Yucks hired me to be on the road, and I got to headline sometimes at the the, the clubs in in Vancouver. <clears throat> but those big little sort of golden apple things never really came my way. So. So when you're, and you mentioned him already, Brent, but like when you have yeah. a guy like that, kind of you're, you're in that orbit or however you would describe it. Yeah. Is, is that a, is that beneficial to have that or is, is his light blinding everybody in, in your local comedy, comedy scene? No, not at all. Uh, no, it was great to have him. And uh, even then, like, so I started in 98 and he was already kind of the king of the castle in Vancouver, like it, it, as far as stand up. This is before Corner Gas yeah. and all that stuff, though. You know, he, but he was kind of the big guy on, on the block. And he was the every Tuesday night, there was two shows every Tuesday night, an early late show at Urban Well. He hosted both shows. And uh, each show would have like anywhere between like sort of seven and 10 comics and then a headliner. And he was, it was a big deal to get on that show the first time. But I became a regular pretty quickly because he liked me um and i liked him he's a, he's an amazing guy and he's really funny um and so i became i got part of that crew pretty quick and i headlined some urban well shows no he wasn't uh he didn't he didn't outshine anybody at all he was always really great at being a, a host of the show because he was really funny but he didn't overshadow anybody and he knew how to run a show really smoothly and put people in the right order so that there was a good flow to it and stuff um there's some great times. Robin Williams used to come by there sometimes. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, whenever he was in town doing a movie, he would he would come and do a set at the Urban Well. I caught two of them. He was there three or four times. Um, people like Sarah Silverman and Kevin Nealon and like I'm not to be a name dropper, but those people would, the Urban Well was a big deal. Like it was like that's where you went to, to do some stage time if you were in Vancouver. Um, Seth Rogen, right? Seth Rogen was a 15 year old comic living in Vancouver when I started. And so he would show up at clubs with his parents uh, where he wasn't even allowed to really be there. And they would, they would, he would go in and do his set and then he had to leave because he was underage. He couldn't drink, oh. right? He had to be 19. Um, so I knew Seth not well. I wasn't buddies with him, but I, he was part of that whole scene. Zach Galifianakis was another one too. He lived in Vancouver for a bunch of years. And so it was really fun and it seemed really magical kind of, you know what I mean? And I, I really cherish those memories for sure that but, uh, that must have been a really hard scene to walk away from with kind of like the way you you're waxing nostalgic about it like it's it must have seemed like it was magical and 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 you were in on it like all these names that you, you yeah. know you said you're dropping names but i mean all these people that you're 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 a peer of at that yeah. point right yeah well kind of i guess yeah um and beyond the dropping of the names like those are all impressive fancy famous people that used to pop by but the, the people that really mattered were the people that were there every week week in and week out who are names that if you know comedians in canada you, you would know like there's a guy peter calamus um there was a guy named erwin barker who's sadly died now but erwin was amazing he was this older guy really funny headliner uh really well respected and he was always really nice to the young guys like like me and the people that were starting out he'd always have advice but never 
overbearing or anything. Um, and Brent Butt was another guy like that. Like he was just, those are the people that were, were important. Like those, those, those they weren't household names, but they were really cool people. Uh, Daryl Lennox was another guy. Um, yeah, it was magic. Like to walk away from it, yeah, I, I didn't really, it didn't feel like I was walking away from it. It felt like it, maybe I was changing, but the scene was changing too. Like there was, um, and maybe it's the same for anybody starting out. Maybe that's the magical time for anybody that that sort of first four or five years is like so cool. But it seemed to me like I hit it at a really special time and it changed, it changed after that. And maybe it was because of me or maybe it was actually, it wasn't as fun anymore in general. Does that make sense? Yeah. And for example, the urban well, that this place I'm telling you about, it closed down, right? So it closed down. The comedy scene continued and other places popped up, but it wasn't the same anymore. So those kind of, you know, it ebbs and flows, right? Like, you know, um, I feel really bad for comedians now because of all of this, like, cancel culture stuff and i don't want to get into that too much but like i believe in a lot of it and i think we're living in an interesting time where we're seeing a shift to a new way of thinking which is important but i think it, it's damaged the ability to uh laugh at ourselves like like we used to be able to does that make sense and so you've got to be so careful with what you do and what you say the freedom that used to be experienced with being a comic and being able to say whatever you want to get a laugh and you know people knew it was a joke people understood satire that kind of stuff is a little bit kind of on its way out now and i don't know if i i don't yeah. envy i don't envy people getting into it now well and and i i just yeah i i this is not a political place mm -hmm. but it's no everybody takes themselves way too seriously and absolutely everybody probably myself included um but i just i feel like no nobody can can look at the joke and go clearly a joke yeah yeah good on you for pointing it out and phrasing it in such a manner that two-thirds of this room thought it was funny i don't but good on you that that's not a thing anymore so no it's not and let me tell you something else real quick here is uh i talked about getting out of it like three or four years ago uh partly because of nerves partly because i was busy but honestly one of the one of the big reasons i got out of it was because i work in radio full-time i'm you know i because i'm on the morning show with dylan and, and we're a fairly popular radio station here i'm sort of known in victoria in for people who listen to the radio they know who you know what i mean so there's a yeah. little bit of that i love my job at the radio it's a great career it you know it it, it it's served me well it got to a point where I realized the way things were going, if I was on stage at Heckler's, you know, with Aaron, at Aaron's place, and let's say uh, somebody was heckling me or saying something shitty, and I went on a rant to try to shut that guy up, or or a woman or whatever, yeah, I said the wrong thing, and I said some word or I or said something that was that could could be misconstrued, and somebody had their cell phone out filming it, and I could lose my job now. I could lose my job at the radio station based on something I said at, at a completely separate place, separate time, where I'm supposed to have this freedom of expression. I could the 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 threat of that actually happening was becoming very real. I'm like, I, I, I'm not going to risk that anymore, you know. Yeah. And maybe it's like it's sad because the whole point of something like stand up is it's supposed to be a, a, a place to express yourself and be funny. If you're an asshole and a racist and all that, then people will call you out for it and justice will be done. Do you know what I mean? You'll be exposed by for that yeah. soon enough and, and easily enough. Right but now you could say something and have it be taken completely out of context and have it be posted and go viral or whatever. And the next thing you know, you're out of a job. Yeah. Your employer doesn't want to have that uh, stain on them, and I well, thought, that's, oh, and that's like it's kind of interesting that um, we're kind of getting a a bit of a picture of twenty years ago, Jason, because you were stand up comedian, punk rock, like you you valued that freedom of expression and you you dabbled in that because it was something that you believed in, and and then it's interesting because then you went to a career in in you know in 
broadcast journalism, which, um, you know, you, you have to have these concerns. You're not doing the yeah. Beaverton or, or, you know, a vice show you're, you're doing like, you know, working for a big mainstream media company. That's Whoa. the goal typically when you go yeah. into that career. Yeah. And it is very counter to those ideals from punk rock or comedy, stand up comedy. Right. So it's kind of an interesting, um, you know, this and this part of yeah. your life. Right. That's totally true. And I, I think that I, I try to sort of balance it all a little bit. I mean, even though I work for a commercial radio station that's got advertisers and, and, you know, there's, there's rules and all that stuff. Um, we still have fun and I still can express myself and I can still, um, within being funny on the radio, I can, I can express my opinions and sometimes we get pushback on that and that's fine. So this, you know, and I, and I, I try not to feel like a sellout or whatever. Um, I still hold closely my beliefs and my opinions about things. And I'm still a little bit of a punk rocker in some senses on the radio too. Does that make sense? That, but I mean, my punk, the, the radio show I do with the punk music every Friday night is my, my real release of that. You know, I can yeah. play whatever the fuck I want and it's awesome. But uh, yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. It's, it's funny. Like, yeah, you, know, you have to make compromises in life if you want to do certain things, you know? So. Well, and, and just because you go put the, the shopping cart back in the corral at Costco where there's no dollar in it for you, yeah. it doesn't mean you're, you're a conformist. It means that you're considerate of the people around you and that if everybody just left their shopping cart where they wanted to, yeah. you know, for, for every Sid Vicious and Nancy Spongeon, you have to have 25... I don't know Ronald and Nancy Reagan's that are doing it the right way, right? I don't, I don't know. I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I like and that. It's like, and that's it, you say you have to make these compromises, but as you as you become an adult, like you you can still you can still be counterculture and, and have these beliefs and ethics. But I mean, when when the teacher phones and says your kid was being disrespectful in school, you can be counterculture and still explain to your child why you have to respect the teacher in the school and, and yeah. you know what i'm saying and, I do. and yeah. that's not a nuance that comes easily sometimes when you're 18 years old and angry and full of testosterone and all the things that kind of people the connotation of of that uh, exactly and i mean all of the punk rockers i know now are all my age or or older or maybe slightly younger but you know they're all 40s 50s and some of them in their 60s and it comes down to just being a good person you just need to be a good person you can you can listen to that the hardest shittiest craziest music you want you can dress like a you know with spikes and everything else and you can still do drugs and be an idiot but be a good person, you know, be, yeah. be, be, treat your fellow human beings well, and you'll, you'll be all right. That's not what it comes down to. And punk so, rockers, my experience, are the coolest, friendliest, nicest, most welcoming community of people I've ever met. Yeah, well, and it's, it's, it's an interesting, like, I mean, I grew up in rural Saskatchewan, so my uh, exposure to that was, was, I mean, it wasn't limited, it was non-existence, and mm -hmm. then... You know, I became a fan of loud, aggressive music and, you know, was told my whole life that you'll grow out of it. You know, you'll, you'll like your Brooks and Dunn when you're older. And and I, I still don't. Like, I, I can appreciate Brooks and Dunn. I went and saw Garth Brooks when he came to Calgary and was blown away by the show he put on. Oh, sure. Yeah. But there was nothing about the music that moved me. But it was yeah. a spectacle, right? So so that's cool. I can appreciate that. So Absolutely. Yeah. So now that you're you're kind of moved into this here, the stand-up comedy is not going to be a thing for you. Mm -hmm. uh, you've come to that conclusion. You you, you start to, to get into broadcast journalism. You did you say you were married at this point, or or at least with the woman you ended up marrying? Yeah, yes, for sure. I I got married before I even went back to school for that. So yeah, I've been married for a long time, and then my kid is uh, now 13 years old. So yeah. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've uh, I'm I'm the same thing. I got a 13 year old son and 11 year old daughter. So oh wow, right on. Um, I'm I'm 
the signposts in my life have far less to do with what I'm doing and way more to do with what they were. Well, how old was Liam when we moved to, you know, all right. that kind of stuff. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, so this is, a this is Jason's attempt at kind of, on you know, giving, giving your family a sense of, uh, of a normal normalcy and stuff like that, or, or how did that come about? You mean getting into radio? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess that was part of it. Yeah, I wanted to have something that was a bit more of a, um, you know, had a career possibilities or whatever. Um, yeah, definitely. Again, back to like, <clears throat> you know, there's nothing more uncertain than doing stand up and then nothing more backbreaking and awful to me than waiting tables, which I did for many years and I was really good at it, but I hated every minute of it. Um, I wanted. I just wanted to do something. Money wasn't as important to me as having something that I enjoyed doing that was maybe a bit more uh, uh, reliable, I guess. You know, and so, and I lucked out because, you know, there's no money in radio unless you start getting into being on morning shows and being in bigger markets and stuff like that. So. Um, again things kind of fell into place luckily when i ended up back in victoria and the you know a set of circumstances took place where i ended up getting along with this guy dylan and ended up getting offered that job and that's been awesome i mean i don't make a lot of money um but it's a pretty solid job like we get i don't think we're going anywhere we get good ratings we have lots of fun perks and uh i can pay my bills which is great you know and uh so yeah, I guess does that answer your question in the slightest? I think I, I think that the, wanting to settle down and stuff was was definitely part of it, but also just uh, just wanting to find something I could I could wake up in the morning and be happy to go to work to do, and, and I've been lucky that way. And so the thought of kind of some of this branching off with the punk show and some of the yeah. other things that you can do that was never like a broadcast journalism may end up being an opportunity for me to like a morning show where I can be funny yeah. and uh, what is uh, Colin Cowherd from ESPN used to do the wacky, wacky, wacky afternoon morning or wacky morning FMDJ yeah. do a thing. And then, and then you've got this other opportunity. Now you work at the radio station, so you can pitch these, you know, right. uh, punk rock Friday night afternoon whatever shows like that was never a part of it this is all just kind of you, you're looking around and seeing these opportunities and kind of figuring out ways to to make it work exactly so yeah so I got into it with the news thing I got the journal journalism degree and uh that got me the in and then I, with some luck and some work, I got on to the morning show where I'm now reading the news, but I'm also the co-host so I can be funny. Now I'm there for a couple of years and I'm like, oh, well, what's my other passion in life? Well, I love punk rock music and I have this ability to maybe get some of these cool bands that I like on the radio, like, and especially local bands that would never normally ever get any kind of exposure like that. Um, and like, I, I don't, I've never gotten paid a, a dime for the punk show. Like it's completely on my own time. It's my own thing. They give me, you know, they promote it on the radio for me. They give me an hour, like I say, of uncensored commercial free radio time. Um, but it's all just completely on, like, it's just a passion, a passion project, right? The morning show pays my bills. The punk show is just what I let, I like to do on the side because it's fun and I love doing it. So um yeah that was just an opportunity it presented itself where i'm like oh, i wonder if they would go for this and they did so yeah, it just made it just made more work for me basically and now that i'm doing this book which is not related to the radio station whatsoever um other than the radio station has enabled me to make some connections and stuff um you know the book is taking so much of my time that the punk show is suffering because i used to put up a brand new show every week now i'm kind of like running a repeat every couple of weeks and then trying to get a new one up. And I'm not as focused on it because I just don't have the time. Um, but once the book's done, then I'll go back to being focused on that more, if that makes sense. So and sometimes so I feel like I'm putting on too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's a lot. And, and all of those things are, especially if you don't have a, like a staff to help you with your show, it, like it's labor no, yeah. intense, man. Like, yeah. 
That's so sure. does, does your journalism background or your, your degree, I guess, maybe maybe is the way to put it more so than background, does that lend you an air of legitimacy when you're trying to do some of these passion projects that you kind of know your way around this stuff? Or are you just, Jay, trying to do some fun things and people, you know, you're good enough at the other things that you do that people give you a little rope? Um, probably more the, the latter there, I think. Um, the journalism thing, the only thing it gave me was some of the technical know-how of how radio stations work and how to put together newscasts and things like that. I'm no longer passionate about news in the slightest. And to be honest with you, with the way the world's been the last couple of years, if it was up to me, I wouldn't even have to read the news at all because I'm tired of being exposed to it even. But it's part of my job now, right? So yeah. um, it never really opened doors up with that stuff other than gave me maybe a bit of a... It was my end radio, but interviewing people and which I love doing too, um, and making those types of connections, that's all just been on the fly. Like I, it just, I just, it's built on upon itself. Does that make sense? When I started the punk show, I just started reaching out to some of my favorite bands and, you know, one out of every 10 would say, yeah, sure. I'll do an interview with you. And it'd be somebody who to me was kind of a big deal, but to, Joe Blow on the street wouldn't know who that person was, but I would do an interview and I'd be nervous. And then the next one, I wasn't quite as nervous. And then the next one, I was a bit better. And and then now, fast forward 10 years, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people. And it's, I love doing it. It's like, it's, it's, it's no longer, I'm not striving to get better. I am still striving to get better, but I'm not, I'm not trying to, to get the experience. I'm just doing it now. Does that make sense? Like, like, and that's kind of how I think, a lot of these things kind of work like um i was flying by the sea of my pants and just sort of diving in with it and yeah. uh, and it worked i guess eventually but it wasn't like i was good at doing the punk show from day one that was you know i would i wouldn't even want to listen to the first few that i did i'm sure they were awful you know you made an interesting comment there and, I, and i'm as someone who's in that journey right now um yeah when did you realize that you were just doing it and you weren't striving every show to do this better or that better was it a aha moment or did you just kind of one day you were just like look at me go yeah I, it, it wasn't really an aha moment at all um and i don't want to be misconstrued because you're always trying to get better like it's not like you rest on your laurels but it gets to a point where I guess you just get good at, at something and, and do you know what I mean? And it becomes, um, I know exactly what you're saying. And I, it's just curious to hear that the way you phrased it. I was like, that's a great way to say it. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't say there was any aha moment. Like, Oh wow, I've got, I've got this locked in now, man. Way to go. It just kind of naturally occurred over time. Um, huh. but I mean, there's still so much always room for improvement with everything. Right. But, uh, the book too, like, I love interviewing people. That's one of my favorite things to do. And, uh, you know, this past year, I, like I told you, I have interviewed probably, probably close to 400 people, 350 plus people in a year. And these are like hour long plus conversations every time. And some of them are just people who like were a tour manager for the, this guy or this person that sold merch, but other people are like, you know, big rock stars and big punk stars and all that. And it's, uh, it's always interesting for me to do and I'm proud of myself now because I think I'm a pretty good interviewer. Do you know what I mean? And I listen to my interviews going, yeah, I was, I, I, I think, I think I got it kind of figured out now. I think I'm good at it now. Does that make sense? Whereas 10 years ago when I started the punk show, I had never, I had interviewed maybe three people in my radio career up until then. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It was just experience, you know? Pra oh, totally. Yeah. Did you ever, did you ever have that feeling when you were doing comedy that, that the, the striving wasn't the thing foremost in your mind and you were just doing comedy or is that something that took way longer and, and you've only really felt like that doing the interviewing thing with, with the show? That's an interesting question because I think that I never really felt that way with comedy. And that's probably one of the reasons why I never really felt like I was going to be doing it full time because I don't think I ever got comfortable with it. Do you know what I mean? I was always you just kind of knew that, that that 
hadn't clicked yet and and when you got to a certain point you were like it should have clicked by now that's very well put totally absolutely yeah yeah i put enough time into it i've done enough shows that it was like yeah i probably something yeah i should be more comfortable doing this now and i'm not i still get nervous i still worry about uh you know worry about the shows and i don't think i've written enough and i and have all these second guesses and uh, yeah i'd never really gotten into the flow of it like where i was like oh yeah i got this it never really felt that way whereas oh, what yeah. i'm doing now does kind of yeah so now you're you're a morning guy successful morning guy in a big market uh you got a media market victoria's medium market <laughs> <laughs> well, um so medium-sized market uh your hometown right like i, I think i've read a couple of spots here that's where you're from and yep. and you know people i think the the big thing about the island is everybody wants to live there but there's not that much to bring people back there to work so you're you're True. fortunate yeah um, i i'm assuming yeah uh, you feel that way um so it's it's going pretty good you getting to write this this passion project punk book about about your potential favorite band no means no um, yeah. if that goes well is there is there another punk book in the works or or what I, is you know is this something you're you're thinking could be a thing yeah i've thought about that um i don't know what what to say about that because uh I'm so in the thick of it right now um, with this book that uh, I don't know how I'm going to feel when it's done. Like it, it's, it's uh, first of all, if it's no good and people hate it, then it's going to kill me. And then I'm going to be like, you know, what the hell was I thinking? If it is good and, and it's successful in any way, I'm not sure if I want to go through all of this again, because it's been so much work. Um, that said, there was enough of it was rewarding and awesome that I probably would. I just don't know what it would be. Like, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of like another band I would want to do a book about, or would I want to do something, maybe a general book about the Victoria punk scene or something, or I don't know. Um, that really remains to be seen, man. I can't really answer that. I, I, I don't know. I, I, at this point, I, I don't even want to think about that. I just want to, I just want to get this one done as best as it can be. And then, uh, and then see where it goes. Well, and a part of me thinks like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm 50 years old. Wouldn't it be nice to like have this book, sell a bunch of copies and do really well. And then the publisher says, hey, we want you to write another book. And then I can like get a little house on a Gulf Island somewhere and write for a living, you know, go live on Gabriola Island with a little cabin and a boat and just get up in the morning and write. That would be amazing. You know, yeah. I, I miss the radio and stuff, but I, I could do that. <laughs> Not that much, I guess. Exactly, right. Well, it's, and that's interesting too, is for somebody who's not like a, you're not a Joel McIver or one of those guys that just goes out there and does music biographies. Mm -hmm. um, he probably, somebody who does that would have a system and whether yeah. or not they're totally enamored with doing Dave Stewart and Annie Lennox, the Eurythmic story or you know, the Cliff Burton story or right. the Fletcher Drake story, mm -hmm. you have to be passionate about it to put that work in because you're doing it in addition to being a husband and a father and a radio host and all these other things. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I was given an opportunity, if, if, if at the end of the day, the book is good and I'm given the opportunity to like make this be a new career at this late in my life, I would probably take that on. Um, and maybe I would write books about bands that I like, but don't care that much about as much as I do about <laughs> this one. The only reason I'm doing this one is because, um, I love this band and I just, I feel this need, this book needs to exist. I want to buy this book. Do you know what I mean? I want this book to exist for me as a fan. And so I think that there's enough fans out there that would think the same way. Um, but I decided to take it on and to my complete surprise, the band were totally fine with it. So and involved in it too right like so i don't know if i would ever get that again with another project or i i can't think of another band uh that i mean i love lots of bands i love the beastie boys i love the who i love uh uh you know the dead kennedys but these bands all have books written about them already they've already got it's all been covered you know what i mean so i i am like where, where where else would i go with it i don't, I don't really know well, i don't really yeah 
Maybe no more. You, you should you should at least reach out to Jello and see if he'd entertain it. Right. Well, I've inter- I interviewed Jello for the book because uh, oh yeah, because Jello's um, record label, Alternative Tentacles, that's where Romans, No Means No is on there uh, on AT for years. So yeah, I interviewed. Get this, Gord. I interviewed Jello Biafra, for, and uh, it was a four and a half hour long phone conversation. Really? Yeah. He talks and talks. And talks and talks. <laughs> you think you think I blab a lot? Jello Biafra was a long interview. Great interview. Really funny, really cool. But yeah, that was a long night. Well, but he's Jello Biafra. <laughs> I know, dude. I know. Yeah. And I love the Dead Kennedys. I was it started I was so nervous to talk to him too. He was one where I got nervous. I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna talk to Jello. Um but you know, within about twenty minutes or so, it was fine. And then the next thing I know, I'm like, "Holy shit!" It's been three hours, and I'm still talking to him. And then finally, I was like, "All right, Jello, I think we should wrap this up." <laughs> I'm like, "I can't believe I'm telling Jello I want to wrap this up." But it was, it was. Uh, we could have gone all night, probably. Yeah. Well, and yeah. He's, got, he's got stories. He's got stories. So. Yeah. Yeah. So what? So uh, at, this point, at this point. What is, what is what is success for you? Like what? Like you're doing all these things. You, you're kind of still never little. I don't want to say Peter Pan syndrome, but you're able to keep your fingers in the things and keep yourself young, keeping involved in things that you were enjoyed in when you were younger. Yeah. So it's like other than a healthy, well-adjusted child and a wife who loves you. What's success? Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I don't even know if that's a good thing. You know, am I, am I like refusing to grow up by still, you know, hanging on to all of these bands and music and things that I was into 30 years ago or more? Growing up's a trap, man. Everybody knows that. (laughs) Success to me is literally just doing, doing what makes you happy. And it doesn't even matter if it pays the pays you a dime. I, I I honestly think that that's the case. I think you have to, uh, you have to have some goals and some dreams, and and you have to uh, um, do your best to fulfill those. And the the journey of, of fulfilling them can often be even better than the uh, conclusion of fulfilling them. Because even if you don't, sometimes. Sometimes along the way, you'll you'll find another thing that makes you even happier. I don't know if that makes sense. And I mean, my kid, my kid is my is my life. I mean, all of this other shit is amazing, but you know, the best thing in my life is my son. Yeah, bar none, all the time. And if all of this went away and I still had him, it would be fine. Like I said in the introduction, uh, Jason's got a really in- unique and interesting story about how he kind of landed at all the different places he does and, and is been. Um, the you know if you're listening to this because of the the thought of the punk rock angle um, intrigued you, you know the fact that he just had a four and a half hour phone conversation with Jello Biafra is is cool enough on its own, and and he talks about you know what goes into that and and the labor of love that it becomes and or that it is and and the work that it becomes and and how those things kind of piggyback off each other it's uh really interesting to hear how one thing kind of leads to another for him he doesn't you know he makes mention that he doesn't ever really set out to start one thing and stop another it just kind of works out that way and and we're finding that a lot with with the different folks that we talk to very few people actually make a, a hard decision to change course. They just kind of figure out that what they're doing isn't working and they want to do something different. And, and they don't always pick the thing that makes them happy the first time. And that's why somebody might have a second or third or fourth act. And, and those are the conversations that we love to have because when we're all sitting around looking in the mirror, talking about what, uh, what we want to do and, and, and visualizing and verbalizing those things to, to, to reality it's great to know that there's other people out there that have had these opportunities and it didn't go well the first time and they figured it out the second time or they made it made do with it until they could get it right because that's what it's all about. Ultimately, that's what we're all here trying to do is figure out what, what it is that makes us happy, how we're going to manifest that so that we can maintain that level of happiness and we can look at ourselves in the mirror and know that we're doing our best at something that we love. Really happy to have had Jason on the podcast. It's just an interesting guy who, who's able to talk um, about the things he's, he can convey his thoughts. He's got a great story and, and you can tell he's, he's 
well versed at, at you know talking about the highs and the lows. He he didn't miss much and he was able to articulate it really well. And that those are the stories that we want to bring. If you guys have anybody that you think might be interesting, reach out to me. I'm, I've been have had people on LinkedIn reach out to me. I've had people on on the email. Had people uh, on Instagram. Just let me know. Uh, I'll reach out to them. I don't have any troubles doing that. The worst they can do is say no. And uh, the best they can do is is actually come on here and appear on here, and we, and we can learn more about them. If if you think they're interesting, chances are they probably are. I want to remind everybody that the like, rate, review, all the things on the on the podcast platforms is important. Uh, we're we're super into to feedback on Instagram and hearing hearing what people think. That's that's kind of the jam. That's what gets us going on this stuff. And uh, it's important to us that that we understand exactly what what you guys want to hear, so that we're we're hitting the mark. That's what we want to do. Again, as I say at the end of every episode, there's no wrong answer. There are no wrong answers, and there is no test at the end. So make the most out of every day. The second act of the podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music. Happy Rock. That is www.bensound.com. We'd also like to thank Chin Whiskers for the promotional consideration. You can find them at your local Tommy Guns, Original Barbershop, Amazon, or chinwhiskers.ca. And we would also like to thank you for listening.